Thank you very much, as always. But that last one wasn't a Rich Mullins, was it? No. Okay. Now that you all know that, it's very important that we got that together. All right. Let me pull this up so I know what we're looking at. Uh, go ahead and bring up my stuff. There she is. Uh, everybody, meet St. Catherine of Genoa. I did not know that St. Catherine of Genoa was a person until uh, just this past week. Uh, she lived in Italy, as the name might suggest, uh, about five, 600 years ago. Uh, she lived through the Black Plague and survived that, a plague that wiped out half of, uh, of Europe. Uh, it's pretty incredible. Uh, she was born to a fairly prominent family. This is Women's History Month, by the way, one of the reasons why I want to celebrate uh, her. Um, unfortunately for her, uh, she was married uh, for political gain, uh, which was common back in the day. Uh, so the guy that she married was strictly uh, to form an alliance between two counties or countries or who knows what. And unfortunately for her, the guy that she married uh, was not a great guy. Uh, he blew through his money fast, uh, so they lived and struggled. He also uh, was not faithful, and so she didn't have uh, the stable stability of love uh, exclusively for her. Uh, and she just wasn't a good guy, period. For the first five years, uh, she couldn't conceive, which uh, back in that day and age uh, was uh, just a horrible sense of God's wrath. The next five years weren't any better. About 10 years into her marriage, or bad marriage, uh, she had an experience that changed her life. Now, she grew up very, very, very Catholic, uh, like her father was very tight with the Pope of the day, that tight. So she knew Catholicism well, but uh, there was something about it that there wasn't quite uh, a connection that was made just yet. Not that we rule out Catholicism, that's not it, but, but there was a missing ingredient that didn't really click for her until about 10 years into her horrible marriage. And this experience that she had, she was overwhelmed by the love of God. I mean, overwhelmed by the love of God. Like the Spirit of God did something so much over her that she couldn't look away. That moment for her changed everything. It didn't magically make every pain disappear. It didn't fix all of her problems. But it changed her perspective and it changed her heart so that she was able to continue moving forward and actually thrive. Whatever happened in her must have been uh, impactful on her deadbeat husband because he also <laughs> had one of these experiences of the pervasive love of God. And it changed him. So while the first 10 years of their marriage was horrible, the remainder of their lives together was beautiful. He got his act cleaned up. Together they moved into a residential space in a hospital because they wanted to devote themselves to caring for the infirmed in this hospital for the rest of their lives, and they did. It wasn't the judgment or the wrath of God that convicted them to do these good things. It was the love of God that transformed their lives. And that's still true today. So we're gonna take a look at a story which is very, very familiar. It's one of the best known uh, parables that Jesus told. A parable is a made up story that Jesus told uh, for a particular purpose, usually to talk about things of God, but also things of humanity and how they all work together. 
So here we go. Uh, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Now, you need to know that tax collectors back in those days weren't the IRS agents that we hate today, but they were a little bit different. Uh, tax collectors back then were usually uh, Jewish people uh, that sold out to the Roman government uh, for a price uh, so that they could collect money from their fellow Jewish people. Uh, so they were looked at as traitors in that regard. And notorious sinners, well, you can imagine just about anything you want that would probably fit notorious sinners. You know, Dodgers fans, etc. <laughs> Uh, okay, so this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So they were uptight because Jewish law said you're not supposed to mix it up with such people. It defiles you. You could become guilty of association. They might rub off on you. Maybe you're affirming their, them in their sin uh, because you're not chewing them away or chastising them. So they got upset, and he somehow knew about it. So Jesus told them the story. Now, he actually told two stories before this one. We're just looking at the third. The first story you probably heard of too. It's about a shepherd uh, who had 100 sheep. One of them walked away and he left the 99 and he went after the one that was lost. You familiar with that one? And he finds the sheep and he comes back and he throws a huge party because the one that was lost was found. So that's the first something was lost and was found and we, and we party. And then he told a second parable right after that. And he said, so there was this woman uh, who had 10 coins, probably her dowry. And she lost one of the coins. And she turned her house upside down to find the missing coin. And then she found it. And once she found the missing coin, she invited the whole neighborhood over to have a big party because what was lost was found. And she couldn't contain her joy. And then the icing on the cake. He crafts this beauty. And this is one that, by the way, this is a lifetime parable. Uh, if you run out of material here in this one parable, you are not paying attention. Okay. And I just want to reiterate what we've said before. You never read the same book twice because you're a different person. So if you think, oh, I've read this story before, I'm going to go ahead and check out now. Wrong answer because you never read the same parable twice either. So some of this will be review and I'll stop and point out a couple things. So Jesus told him this story. A man had two sons, an older and a younger. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Now, let's just park here for a moment. Uh, I'm a father of two kids, uh, just about totally flown the coop. Uh, we'll move Lakin into her apartment uh, in San Francisco in just another week. And then we are true empty nesters. Amen. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> Feels good. Now, if either of my kids, Noah or Lakin, came to Lynn and I and had a, had a dinner with us and said, hey, you know, one day or other, you guys aren't going to be with us anymore, and let's just cut to the chase. Could you, could you pony up, you know, half the estate now? And we would just laugh out loud at that point and say, you mean you want half of our debt now? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> We've got a house in your education, kids. It's all yours. <laughs> Enjoy. Uh, you're going to be out on the street before you know it. So anyway, uh, we wouldn't. But if, in all honesty, if everything was flush and either of our kids came to us and did that, uh, we would probably not be happy and the answer would be no. We'd have more creative questions for them like, what kind of bind you in? What kind of dreams do you have? How can we help in uh, more profitable ways, you know, that makes more sense than us just cutting you a check for half of our estate? That that's, doesn't seem like a good idea. Back in Jesus' day, however, when the younger son said this, he was essentially telling his father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. 
And in fact, he's saying to his dad, you're dead to me. And so could you just cough up what's mine? Now, back in those days, this is not a really important uh, thing to note. This is only to impress your Christian friends, okay? Uh, but when a, a household was divided, especially between just two people, it's real simple math, the older son got, got double what the younger son would get. So in that sense, the estate would be cut into thirds, the older son would get two-thirds, and the younger son would get one-third. So the younger son is asking for his full one-third right now. The audience who would hear this story immediately would gasp. They'd be horrified that some younger son would be so audacious as to say to his father, I just wish you were dead. And in their minds, the answer from the father is obvious. No, and now I'm going to treat you as if you were dead. Because that's how the story is supposed to play out. You tell me you wish I were dead, then I'm going to treat you as if that were so. Leave my household now and don't ever come back. That's what people expected to say, but the story didn't go that direction. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. At that point, by the way, the crowd is going to gasp again because that's not what you're supposed to do. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land called Las Vegas, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding to the pigs looked good to him. Let's just hang out here a minute. No one gave him anything, but I want to talk to you about this. We're talking about a Jewish guy, Jesus, talking to a Jewish audience When they hear about this kid who wished his father were dead, they're now angry at the son as well. What a jerk. And so when they hear that this kid has wasted all of his money, it's all caught up with him. Everything he he sowed has come to to fruition. He made his bed and now he's got to sleep and all this stuff happened. There was no compassion in the audience. And when they heard that he was serving the pigs, Jewish people and pigs, Don't go together, all right? It's a forbidden food, right? And so when they see this picture, they're like, oh, serves you right, you little jerk. You're getting all this that you deserve. Enjoy your status, because that's exactly how it should be. They felt like the world was finally coming into sense and clarity. Justice was having its way on the younger son for being such an insolent offender toward his father. No one in the audience would have cared one bit that this was happening. This was the worst possible pit that a Jewish person could find themselves in. (laughs) Shoveling pig dung and wishing you could eat what they got to eat. It's a real treat. And no one gave a rip. On the next screen, it continues. When he finally came to his senses, we're not exactly sure what that means, by the way. I'll get to that in a bit. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. He's got a speech ready. Apparently he's had a turn of heart, change of heart and mind. 
So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And we're going to hang out here for just a moment. First thing I want you to notice, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him coming. So what does that tell us about dad? Dad's not mad at his younger son. Dad's heart is broken that his son is gone. Every day, dad is waking up and he's looking at the horizon and wondering, when's my son going to come back? Because I miss my son. This is not, I miss my son so I can throw him in jail. This is, I miss my son because I love my son. Is he ever going to return? And he sees him on the horizon. And then he does something an old man uh, of great wealth would not do. It says, filled with love and compassion, just keep it here for a second, Trudy. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. The strangeness here is that he ran. If you're a rich old dude, you don't run anywhere. In fact, you make it a habit of going slow. Because when you walk slow, that means other people have to wait for you. And when you walk slow, it's, an, it's a way of controlling the deck. To say to other people who know that you're a big deal, you have to wait for me because I'm walking slow because I'm a big deal. Take that. And everybody knew that's the way it was. That's a way of letting everyone know just how big of a deal you are. But in this scene, the love of the Father is so great that he can't walk slow. He sprints. He runs as fast as he can because the only thing that's flowing through his veins at this point is the love of his son. And it cannot be contained. All right, so he keeps going. He runs up to him, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And before he gets to the rest of the speech, the dad cuts him off, but his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Now, this ring that we're talking about, scholars debate this a little bit, but a number of growing scholars are saying that the ring that was on his finger was actually a signet ring. The signet ring was like, uh, the capacity to sign checks. It brought him back into the full stature of son, as if everything that had happened was gone, and he now had full access <laughs> to all the estate. He's been fully reinstated without even asking. It's like dad didn't hear any of this. He's like, I'm giving you a checkbook with signing privileges. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. Dad is just beyond giddy here about his son's return. And we continue. He was lost, but now he was found. So the party began. By the way, just quickly connect the dots. This is the third story where something was lost, something was found, and there was great rejoicing because of it. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of the safe return. Now, I just want to tell you something. I didn't really say that right. Uh, let me say it again a little differently. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Uh, well, your brother's back. 
and uh, your your father's killed the fat calf, and we're um, <clears throat> celebrating uh, because of its uh, safe safe return. That's how it would have been said. Now we continue. So the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. You'll understand why in a little bit. Was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but but he replied to his dad, who's been with all this time, all these years, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yeah, when this son of yours, he's not my brother, he's your son. When this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. I don't know if you noticed, I tried to have an angry voice with that. <laughs> yeah, because he's angry. All right, next slide. His father said to him, look, dear son. What's that? And say, look, you jerk. Don't take that tone with me. <laughs> He says, look, dear son, dear son, he loves this son too. He loves this son too. His love is not going to be dissuaded by his older son's behavior. The love is there. Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother not just my son, your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And we don't know if the brother goes in. That's how the story ends, on purpose. So we'd still be talking about it today. So on the next slide, uh, this is kind of how we normally look at this, just a plain reading of this text. Uh, the prodigal's parable is about wandering kids coming home. So these are the tax collectors and sinners. Somehow uh, they find love with God and they come home and they're welcomed home by God. The father is clearly the God character in the story. And the prodigal's parable is also about self-righteous kids getting schooled. Uh, the Pharisees who fell out of love with God are, are, are highlighted in that older brother category. By the way, uh, the younger uh, sons generally know who they are because they have the before and after story. They have the moment where they remember things came around and they knew it and they came back. This is classic, um, you know, born again kind of stories where a reckless life was lived and then all of a sudden they heard about grace, they trusted grace, they went for it, they found out grace was real, radically changed their life and on forward they went. But the older sons, the older brothers, they're a little trickier to convince which is why Jesus gave this parable probably, because they're very rarely able to see themselves as the older brother. <laughs> because their job up until that point in their life is to let everybody else know they're the younger brother. They're the younger son. They never associate themselves as the problem child because they always assume it's those others who run away when they are the ones who are actually <laughs> home but not really home. That's the irony here. The older son was home the whole time, but he was never home. He was never experiencing the love of God that was there the whole time. 
Instead, his paradigm of God, which was very, very human, this is we go this way because it's easy, it's easy for us to control, was all about transactions. I'm going to do what you say, Dad, so that I get to be here and I get to inherit all this stuff once. I don't really like you. You're making me do all this work. My idiot brother just took his money and went to Vegas. We're never going to see him again, but I'm stuck here uh, doing what you're wanting me to do. You're my master. I'm your slave, and I hate it. I hate this life. He's grumpy. He's got attitude, and that's why the servants were not happy to tell him what happened because they knew (laughs) just what kind of response he would have. They were right. I'm pretty sure that the servants of the father prayed for the father's long, good health because they knew as soon as dad was gone, there was going to be hell to pay. They hadn't seen anything yet. That's what happens to us. We either never really understand the love of God so uh, this story obviously is also about a father who's love. Oop, keep go back, Trudy. The story is also about a father who loves his kids prodigiously. God who is in love with God's kids. You know, we call this story the, the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. I think it's I think it's a bit of a mistake. I mean, yeah, he did. Prodig- uh, prodigious means to be reckless, uh, and certainly the younger son was reckless with his life and blew all the cash and was stuck. But the more reckless one was actually dad here. The more reckless one was the one who brought him back and gave him the checkbook all over again. In fact, I just want to point out something just really quick before we go on to another way to think about what the story might mean. Because there are many ways, there's not one right way. What I'm giving you here is direct to the, to the, to the issue that Jesus was speaking into. So yeah, we can have confidence in that, but there are more nuances here to look at, which I'll get to. But what I do want to say is that this is not a parable about good parenting. Now, the part about loving your kids, that's a good parenting tip. It's a good, <laughs> if you don't love your kids, <laughs> huh, well, <laughs> uh, that's its own problem. But, <laughs> but the idea of loving our kids, for most parents, comes pretty naturally, and we want to love our children. But dad's behavior here is not exemplary for a human relationship. It is a bad idea. When you know your kid is going to run off to Vegas and blow cash, it is a, actually a really bad idea to go ahead and give him his full estate now. That's dumb. That's bad stewardship. It's bad for you as a dad. It's bad for him as a kid. He obviously doesn't know what to do. He needs to mature a lot because he's even asking the question, which is ridiculous. Bad move, dad. Dumb idea. So if you're considering uh, doing what this prodigal father did, Just stop, because this is not a parenting 101 parable, (laughs) okay? And the the back end of the story is also uh, not a parenting 101 uh, textbook kind of a situation, because you have a dad who doesn't know anything. He just knows that his son's alive and he's super happy about it. But before he finds out anything what's going on, he goes ahead and gives him the checkbook again and that signet ring. That's a bad idea, dad. You don't know what this guy's got going on in his veins. You don't know what kind of stuff is pulling his triggers. Who knows what kind of stuff he's he's into? You could be just giving away the farm and you don't even know it. So pay attention to that. Because I think <laughs> I think some of us look and think, oh, well, if that's the curse of God, then we got to act like God. And so, okay, kids, have at it. Bad idea. This is not a parenting 101 parable. So let's get into the deeper stuff. There's another way to think about this. 
But the prodigal's parable is also about our human nature's younger kids, when we are very conscious in our walking away. And I'm asking the question, how is this true of you? So I'm, I'm asking you to think about a, a continuum. And on one end, you have us fully conscious, you know, in the worst type of situation, the most offensive we can be toward the ways of God and the person of Jesus. And we just basically, you know, give God the bird and just do whatever the heck we want. And who cares? We're going to be reckless with ourselves. We're going to be reckless with others. There's not going to be much love going on at all toward ourselves or any other person or God. And that's a, that is a conscious place. And I'm sure that there are times that you can identify in your history where you did it. Can anybody identify at least one thing, one time in your life? All right, we're going to go around the room and tell our stories right now. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. No, we all do. And I want to push you a little further and, and help you own that we still do. That there are parts of our lives that are incongruent with the footsteps of Jesus. The one that we claim to follow. The one that we say with our mouths and believe with our hearts that who he is and how he modeled life is the way the truth and the life. We look at that and we see this is the way to experience life with God, a meaningful, abundant life right now. And yet I'm confident that to a person here, and I'm not being judgmental at all, I'm saying, I'm telling you this because you're humans, that there are always going to be parts of our lives where we are consciously not following in the footsteps of Jesus. And it can be in any number of ways. I'm just asking you to own that fact. But that's just true. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, we've got the older son who's living completely unconscious. It's a different kind of walking away where the one son knew he was walking away. The other son was completely unconscious and thought everything was just fine. And yet he was as far away from home as the younger brother ever was. And I think we also struggle with this. We get into our patterns and we get into our routines we get into our comfort zone, even in the faith, where we've got it all pretty well figured out, feels pretty good, we kind of got it dialed in, and then we just kind of let things coast, kind of stop growing, stop wondering. Things change, by the way, in the way we do our service to the church. Oh, I've seen this so many times in myself and others where we get into a pattern where we're doing the thing, the thing that we once loved to do. And at one time in the early days, we did it out of such passion, out of such love for God. But after a while, the love kind of fades. We're just like, okay, I'll do it again. And then after even more time, we start to even sound like the younger brother. Like, ah, I got to go do this thing again. When is somebody else going to come and do something? I just feel, ah, when is somebody going to do something? Because I'm so tired of doing this job. And we've lost the loving feeling. We find ourselves looking at other people as outsiders rather than fellow human beings. We see them as some father's son, but not our brother. Now, this happens in churches a lot. You know, that, ma <laughs> that massive list that Dar went through of the ways that Crosswalk is trying to support the different community things that are moving toward health and things that are shalomi. That's kind of what we like to align ourselves with. Well, it started with just a few yeses. And the first few yeses were hard because the older brother was alive and well in us. And we had to correct that in ourselves. I've told the story many times, but we had to correct it in ourselves. And one of the last correcting moments had to do with our noon group that meets in our fireside 
every day at 1215. It's a large group. And they were out growing the fireside room. They were getting like 50 to 60 people. That room holds 60. And so they were asking for a place to meet. And we considered the gym. And they were saying, but the gym is so loud and echoey, it's really hard to hold a meeting. And so the only other room that we had, by the way, little little correction, this is kind of funny. So Dar's talking about <laughs> Memphis using our facility and stuff. And, and the way she phrased it was, and she heard that crosswalk, there wasn't much going on around campus during the week. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> You've just talked about all this stuff going on on campus during the week. This is the only room that doesn't have a lot of stuff going on during the week because it usually doesn't need to be this size of a room. Well, that group, we decided to put in here. And Dar and I were having a conversation and our first reaction to, should we put them in the fireside room, knowing that that was going to bring with them the smell of stale cigarette smoke and definitely a lot of swearing. How did we feel about them occupying this sacred space? And so our older brotherness at first was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if that's a good idea. And literally just about exactly the same time, Dar and I both looked at each other like, what are we talking about? Of course, <laughs> of course, this would be a great spot for them. And it was. Uh, because we're about younger brothers and older brothers. We're about younger brothers who are trying to get it together again. And if we have some space around here that is so pristine and so holy, it's got no room for rather younger brothers. And we need to get that room messed up. That's why it's a cement floor and not new carpet. Because we want it to get abused. We're okay with that. So this is a story about older kids as well. Un unconscious absence from being home, even if you may be there. And I'm just asking, how is that true of you too? Have you gotten onto cruise control in your life and your faith and you've forgotten the loving feeling that maybe never even was for you? Some of us were raised in the church. It just became a part of our culture, a part of our ethos. Maybe you haven't even yet realized just how much God loves you. Even you who may have been in the church your entire life, maybe you still have as yet to really understand how deeply you are loved, completely unconditionally, which is why I think Jesus was actually quite intentional about this prodigious father character, God's loving nature. Because I think Jesus has actually given us something to chew on here. That while it may be bad parenting 101, it's saying something about the nature of God as being fully funding, never-ending, and reckless with love. Amen. Yes, I agree. <laughs> love it. So we have here two kids who both needed the love of God. Both got the inheritance. When the younger one comes back, he finds out that the inheritance has returned. And for us in our way of thinking, we're thinking that's audacious. And that's because we're thinking of this world on this plane. But if we think about this in a larger way of who God is, there's a greater truth here that we need to appreciate. And that is that the love of God and that account that God has never, ever runs out, cannot be divided because it is infinitely large. And every time we come back for it, we are given full access to it. When you were born, you have full access to all of the grace of God over your life. 
It is all there for you. You have a, a, a pen to sign on those checks, however you want. It has always been there. When you mess it up and come back, it's still there. If you're the unconscious older son and you still never figured out that it's all there for you now, it's all there for you now. Wake up, realize it, which begs the question, why do we need to confess in the first place? What about that psalm that talked about how until I confess my sin? Well, does, isn't, isn't our confession the thing that actually enacts God's grace in our life? And I say to you, no, no. God's grace is not dependent or reliant on anything we do. It is just there. It's just there. So why confess? Because when we confess, it means that we have woken up, that we've recognized where we've stepped away, and we are saying, I got to have more of this. Is it really, really there? And we experience the love of God washing over us and in us, and it transforms our lives. If we'll have it, we're not making God do anything. God is not withholding grace up in some heavenly space saying, I'm not going to forgive you until you say the magic words. You're not sorry enough. When you're sorry enough, I'll do it. That's not God. This is a God who runs to his son because he can't help it. This is a God who's insulted by his older son and says, Dear son, because he can't help it, do you understand the pervasive, prodigious love of God? This is who God is. Do you know it? <laughs> is it that thing that has captivated you? And can you imagine how your life might be different if that was your foundation and not the false God foundation of God is just wait until we mess up and we better get it right or else God is going to kick our butts. That is a false God that does not exist, but this ever-pervasive loving God is the one that changed the life of Jesus to make Jesus Jesus. It's also the same one that made Paul Paul. So on the next slide, Paul says this. This is a guy who is deep in that Pharisaic tradition. He was as legalistic as it gets, and then his life was transformed by the love of God. And he said, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. He continues on the next slide. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. We get to be Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God because it's good news. Do you have ears to hear? <laughs> Who are you in this story? Where are you in your journey? You're probably a little bit of both. Do you hear? The voice of the Father saying to you, my dear child, do you see this, this God, this Father, who from a long distance is sprinting to you because this God can't help it? This is the love of God that can never run dry, that you can't do anything to screw up. It's there for the taking. It's there for the enjoyment. It's there for your life to live your life. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to come to the party? Are you going to move forward in the love of God? 
knowing you got a little bit of both older and younger son in you. Hmm. Let's pray together. So God, here we are. And I just want to say I'm grateful. I'm so grateful you're not like us. I'm so grateful you haven't bought into transactional thinking. I'm so grateful you're bigger than us, that you really meant it when you said your ways are higher than our ways, your thoughts are higher than our ways. Because if you were just like us, I would have no hope. I would have no hope. I thank you, God, that you are a God who defines love. Who is infinitely loving. Because at your core, you believe that love is the only thing that really transforms. Only thing that gives us new life. So may we allow you in. May we embrace the love you have for us. God, help us this week uh, to do a little homework on where have we been like the younger son? Where have we been like the older son? And where have we kept you in a transactional place? Where have we limited your love in our lives? May we grow deeper in love with you today, God as we are wooed by the love you first had for us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you had a good experience today. Sorry if I spit on you from up here. It just, just sort of happens sometimes. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.